0: Now this is uh, one of those passages, one of the uh, tough ones in the Bible that uh, sometimes people struggle to understand and I really do think you want to have it open in front of you so uh, we've still got a few Bibles down the front so if you need a Bible to look on, put your hand up and one of our assistants down the front will uh, will come and bring you one uh, but now I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we try and understand this part of Scripture so uh, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you tell us that all of the scriptures or the bible is breathed out by you it's inspired by you and it's useful for us for teaching us for rebuking us for correcting us for training us in righteousness and so father we pray that this part of your word even though sometimes people find it difficult to follow and understand that it might be clear to us tonight and it might do those things for us tonight and we pray this in jesus name amen (coughs) As we start, I want everyone to uh, please close your eyes, so everyone just close your eyes for a minute, now just turn and check, the person next to you has closed their eyes as well, (laughs) keep your eyes shut, no cheating, I can see if you have them open. Uh, Now what I want you to do is empty your mind, empty your mind of everything, don't worry we're not going Buddhist or something here, we're not meditating, empty your mind And I want to say to you, do not start thinking about your dinner. Don't start thinking about your dinner. Don't start thinking about a nice, big, fat, juicy steak. Don't do it. If you're a vegetarian, don't start thinking about a piece of tofu or whatever it is you eat. Um, Don't. Uh, keep your eyes closed do not think about those pad thai noodles you're going to get from number one thai at about nine o'clock tonight don't think about it don't think about that nice cold drink you've been waiting for who's starting to feel a little bit hungry at this point few people are there you go okay open up your eyes isn't it amazing how as soon as someone tells you not to do something you immediately want to do it have you ever noticed that in life when someone says to you don't do that immediately you think i wonder what it is about that that he doesn't want me to do So, you know, when people put a sign next to it, do not press this button, you immediately walk over to it and think, I want to press that button, I wonder what it does, I wonder if an alarm sounds, I wonder what happens when I do that. Once something is forbidden, it suddenly becomes really, really attractive, even if we never wanted to do it before. Uh, That is the reality. Tell me I can't do something and even though I've never wanted to do it, suddenly now it's the thing I want to do. Uh, And that is the problem with trying to stop sin by making laws for people. Uh, That was the problem with the Old Testament law and with Israel. So in itself, God's law was a wonderful thing. It was a gift from God. It came from God himself. But when our sinful hearts are told, God does not want you to do this, it suddenly becomes really attractive. And that's what this chapter, Romans 7 uh, is about. It's about the law of God. Now all through this book of Romans, you remember we looked at Romans 1 to 5 back in first term and then we've been looking at chapter 6 over the last couple of weeks, all through this book we've seen this issue of the law coming up over and over again uh, and it's not our issue. Uh, No one rings me in the middle of the night really worried about, must I keep the Old Testament law? That's that's not an issue for us modern day Christians. But back in the early church, it was a huge issue, which is why it's kept coming up through this book. See, people, especially the first Jewish Christians, so people who come from a Jewish background when Jesus came and they became Christians, they could not believe that God didn't want them to keep the Old Testament law anymore. I thought that cannot be. But that's what the Apostle Paul and the other apostles kept saying to them. They kept going around and said, No, 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 you don't earn your salvation by keeping God's law. That's not the way it is. That's not the way God works. You are saved by grace. It's the free gift of God. You receive it by faith, not by keeping God's law. It's not about if I just try hard enough to be good enough for God, then He might accept me. No, it's a free gift of our salvation. So back in chapter 3, he spent a whole three chapters up to chapter 3 explaining to us that you can't keep all of God's law, all of the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law cannot make you right with God because none of us can do it. None of us is perfect. And we keep being told in every chapter of Romans, God saves us apart from the law. Jesus died for you outside the law you're saved through the death of Jesus not by the law over and over again and then for the last couple of weeks in chapter 6 we've been thinking about the questions that that raises so you remember for two weeks we've thought about this question if I'm saved by Jesus and if it's a free gift and I don't have to keep God's law to be saved well does that mean I can just sin as much as I like then and you know, so last week we thought, am I free to do what I want? Any old time. And what answer did we get in chapter 6? Absolutely. Absolutely not. Thanks, Dave. Exactly. The answer is no. See, we used to be slaves to sin and we used to be slaves to the law that condemns us. But now, he says in chapter 6, we've been set free. But, and this was the important bit, but we've set free to be slaves of righteousness, to become slaves of God. But a lot of people back then still had a problem with this. And their problem was, sort of a historical one, it was, well, why did God bother with all that Old Testament law? Why did God bother giving His people this law? If we could never keep it, why give it to us? That was sort of the question they were asking. If all it does is condemn us and sentence us to death and judgment, then why did God give it to us? And that's what chapter 7 is all about now as I say this was a massive question in the early church but it's probably not a question that comes up for people here from day to day but I want to say to you stick with it because hopefully what we'll see is that even though we don't ask this question uh, the answers have a lot to teach us so look on your outline take out your outline there and you'll see the first point is that we are dead to the law in verses one to six so look with me from verse one He says, since I'm speaking to those who understand law, brothers, are you unaware that the law has authority over someone as long as he lives? Now, that's fairly obvious if you think about it. The law only applies to you when you're alive. Uh, What was the the punishment under the Old Testament law? Remember, there were people wandering around in the desert when they received the law. They, They didn't have prisons and that sort of thing. What was the punishment if you broke the law? It was death. That's what it was. So the point is, well, if you're already dead... Not much can happen to you now. The, the law can't do anything to you. And so Paul gives them the example of the marriage laws. They're in Luke and verses 2 and 3. And he says, well, if you were married under the Old Testament law, and then you married another woman or another man, you'd be guilty of adultery. And the law would catch you and you would face the consequences. And in Leviticus and other places, what were the consequences for adultery? Stoning. So they were pretty awful consequences. But his point is, if your husband or wife has died... Well, then the law is no longer applies. You're free to remarry. Death terminates the power of the law to control you or to condemn you. That's all good, but how is it relevant to us? Look at verse 4. It's the key verse. He says, Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. ...that we may bear fruit for God. I've said before, we need to switch our brains on... Uh, ...which can be difficult at 7pm on a Sunday night. We need to keep our brains switched on to understand Romans. It's not for lazy readers. And so let's look at that verse slowly. First thing he says is... ...you also were put to death in relation to the law. Now how can that be? Seeing as I'm still alive and you're still alive... ...you're breathing, you're, you're here. How is it that we're dead? Well it's the next bit. It says you were put to death... Through the crucified body of the Messiah. So this is that idea we saw in chapter 6 of how by faith we are united with Jesus in his death. That's one of the most important truths to understand. Our old selves died. Who you were died the moment you trusted in Jesus. At that point your old self was nailed to the cross with him. And so the point here is, well, if your old self has died with Jesus, well, we didn't just die to sin, like we learned in chapter 6, the law also no longer applies to us. We've died to the law. So that means, and this is the most wonderful truth, that means we do not have the threat of judgment, of God's judgment, hanging over our heads anymore. It's no longer keep all these laws and keep all these rules or face death and judgment. Now Jesus has taken the punishment of the law himself. He has died, he has faced the judgment of God, he has taken that upon himself. But remember last week's sermon. See, we are freed from slavery to sin to become slaves of God. Well, in the same way, We haven't been freed from the condemnation of God's law. We haven't been freed from that so that we can just go and live lawlessly. And say, I don't care what God thinks now. That's great. I'll just go and live however I please, whether God likes it or not. That's not what he's saying. You see, look at verse 4 again. He says, Therefore, my brothers, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the crucified body of the Messiah, so that you may belong to another to him who was raised from the dead, so that we may bear fruit for God. See that last bit? See, we've been freed from the law with all its do's and don'ts and punishments and all that sort of thing. Not so we can just go and do the things God doesn't want us to do. Now we've been freed so that we can go and choose to live a life that bears fruit for God. So look at verses 5 and 6. He says, for when we were in the flesh... The sinful passions operated through the law in every part of us and bore fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law since we have died to what held us so that we may serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old letter of the law. So you understand this, the way of the law is do this or don't do that or face the consequences. So keep the Sabbath or you will be put to death. Do not commit adultery or you will be stoned. Do not injure your neighbor or the same injury will be done for you. That was, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth in the Old Testament. You see the way the law works? He's saying that's no longer the way it is. We aren't under that law anymore. Jesus has paid the price for all of our breaches. He died so we didn't have to. So now we serve in a new way, in the way of the Spirit. And the way of the Spirit is, do this not because you fear the consequences if you don't do it fear is never the motivation for christian godliness do this because you want to please the one who has already saved you do this because his holy spirit is at work within you if you know jesus live for god because you know who your loving master is live for god because you know he has died for you and he has risen to give you a new life See, the Christian obeys God out of joy and out of love, not out of obligation, not out of fear. See, it's the way of the Spirit versus the way of the law. Now, that raises a question, if you think about it, which is, well, why did God give the law to his people then, if there's this better way, the way of the Spirit? You know, what was the point of it? Did did God actually give his people something bad, something unhelpful? That's what this next little section is about in verses 7 to 11. So look with me. And as we look at this, keep in mind how I started the sermon. You know, visualize what I told you not to visualize, the stake or the pad tire, whatever it is. So look at verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin or is the law evil? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Do you see the point he's making in those verses? What does the law do? What does it achieve? It's like I said before, the law, which is designed to show us the right way, the law actually just fans the sin that is in our hearts to greater and greater heights. That's what the law does. And you see this right back at the start of the Bible, don't you? In Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. You know the story of Adam and Eve. God says, you can have anything in this garden. You can eat from any tree. You can eat the fruit of any tree in this garden, except that one tree over there. You can eat from any of them, but not that one over there. Not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree. If you do, you'll surely die. And suddenly... That's the only fruit they want. it. Suddenly, mangoes, tasteless, don't want them. You know, Watermelon, who cares? Kiwi fruit, don't mind. Even the fruit of the tree of life, suddenly they're willing to give that up just for a taste of the forbidden fruit. See, the thing God's law forbids, that must be the sweetest thing. This is the thing with sin, by the way. At the heart of, the, of sin is that we believe God doesn't know what's best for us, God must be lying to us, God forbids that, that means it must be fun because God doesn't want us to have fun and you see how it happens, law actually incites sin in us, Paul says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law didn't say do not covet, he doesn't mean I wouldn't have understood what that word means, it means to want what he's got, that's what it means in case you're wondering, doesn't mean he didn't know what it meant. It means suddenly when there was a law about it, I did want what he's got. I was jealous. I was envious because God told me I wasn't meant to be. And so sadly, God's law, look at verse 10, the law that was meant to bring life. That is the law that was meant to show me how to live the best way under God and how to experience God's blessing and how to experience God's life. Suddenly that law actually demands my death as a sinner who disobeys God's law that is how it worked with Adam and Eve that's how it worked with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament that's how it worked in Paul's life and is how it works in every one of us see the forbidden fruit always seems so attractive I remember when I was growing up it was the fact that the liquor cabinet was locked that's what made me want to drink from it because I thought it must be good if dad's hiding it from me See, the movie people say should be banned. Suddenly people say, oh, I want to watch that. Because if the church tells me it's bad, there must be something in it, mustn't there? You know, and usually it should be banned, these movies should be banned just for crimes against the arts, but you know, they're awful. But, <laughs> but, but the point is, once someone tells me, oh, it's, there's something in it, suddenly you think, I wonder what it is. It's true, isn't it? The law fans the sin in our heart to life. So so why did God ever give his law in the first place? Why did he give us the Ten Commandments? Why do we keep looking at it as Christians? Is the law bad or evil or sinful? And the answer he gives is no. God doesn't give his people bad things. Look at verse 12. He says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. His point is, no, no, the law is good. But sin, our sin, the sin that's in every one of us, it uses it for evil but here's what's amazing even that evil God uses for good God gave us his law knowing full well that we'd abuse it and couldn't keep it but he gave it to us for a purpose look with me at verse 13 he says therefore did what is good cause my death absolutely not on the contrary sin in order to be recognized as sin was producing death in me through what is good so that through the commandment sin might become sinful beyond measure and there is the point that's the verse where it all comes together verse 13 why did God give us the law even though he knew we wouldn't keep it and even though he knew it would condemn us because the law by fanning our sin into life proves to us that we have a problem it means no one can say, I'm not a sinner. It shows us we're sinful. It shows us God's standards and how, not just that we don't meet them, but there's no way in the world we can meet them. It shows us how serious our sin is. It shows us that we deserve death and judgment for our sin. So what that does is, it shows us our need for forgiveness. You see, the point of the law is, it shows us you are a sinner but God has provided you with a savior and so as we see our sinfulness and as we see our need for help it drives us to turn to Jesus to find the forgiveness he offers see it's only if you grasp if we all grasp just how sinful we are just how far short of God's standards we fall it's only then that we really grasp how wonderful Jesus is and how amazing it is that he was willing to die for us see that's what God's law does doesn't make us godly it can't do that it doesn't give us life it doesn't give us hope it doesn't give us forgiveness what it does is it shows us our sin so that we can turn to the one who does give us life who does give us hope and who does give us forgiveness and that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ See, that's why we still study the Ten Commandments, by the way, and the law from the Old Testament. That's why we preach on Leviticus and Deuteronomy from time to time. Because it shows us God's standards, yes, but more than that, it shows us how much we need Jesus. It drives us to Him. Yes, it shows us God's morality and the way to live as His children, but before it does that, it shows us why we need our Saviour. The thing we need to remember, though, is that telling people God's law will never change anyone when Christians go out and say you must not do that that does not change anyone it doesn't produce godliness because it doesn't deal with the problem which is our sinful heart what is the only thing that produces true godliness in a person it's true conversion that's what produces true godliness knowing Christ and receiving his Holy Spirit that's what will work in a person to produce true godliness and then as we read and hear God's word then we will seek to live a godly life not because we have to see the Christian life is not live this way follow God's law to avoid death and judgment Jesus has already paid that price remember not because we have to but because we want to See, because we want to express our love and devotion to the Lord who has died for us. Because we have a new heart, we have his Holy Spirit within us. And so now, now the Christian life is a walk in the park. And now we live lives of perfect obedience. Isn't that right? Please do not nod at me at this point. See, if only... No, no. The true Christian life is a continual struggle against sin, and that's what we see in this last part of chapter seven. See, this is one of the most disputed passages in the Bible, by the way. Some people don't think this is Paul speaking as a Christian, and as a Christian, and Christians can disagree on this. Uh, Troy and Jason, and Kevin, and I've been tossing this around all week. Uh, For various reasons, I think here, this is Paul talking about his struggle with the sin in his life. That's what he's talking about. I don't want to get sidetracked with those reasons now. If you're one of the three people that want to argue about that with me, you can come and talk to me afterwards. But I want to say, for the majority of Christians for the last 2,000 years, this passage, and I'm talking about uh, chapter 7, from verse 13 to verse 25 here, this passage has been two things. Firstly, it's been the passage you want to avoid on the Bible reading roster. So well done Esther for reading it so well because with all those I do not do what I do and I don't and all that it's very hard to read it so well done. But more importantly for many Christians including me this passage has been the most incredible comfort because there is no place in the Bible that shows that the Christian life is a struggle more than this one and it shows us that we're not alone if we are struggling with sin in our life. If you are struggling with sin in your life It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. That's why this is such a wonderful comfort. So look with me as I read some of it out. Look at verse 15. He says, For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Do you know that tension as a Christian? You know what you want to do, and then you don't do it. And you hate the fact you don't do it. Look down at verse 18 he says for I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh for the desire to do what is good is with me but there's no ability to do it for I do not do the good that I want to do but I practice the evil that I do not want to do do you know that tension I pray you do I pray you do if you don't know that tension it means you're not a believer You see, as a Christian saved by Jesus' death and with the Holy Spirit in me, I am convicted of my need to live God's way. I want to live for God. As I read his word, I'm convicted of the things I need to get rid of, the things I need to change in my life. But as I try to do it, sometimes I succeed by God's grace, but at other times I find myself failing. And at that moment, I hate what I've thought Or what I've said or what I've done but I still did it does anyone not know that tension see even though we've died to sin even though we have God's Holy Spirit we continue to struggle with sin for our whole life when we died with Christ the most amazing thing happened so when you came to trust in Jesus and your old self died and you became a new person The power of sin to separate you from God died. That is the most wonderful truth. And the power of God's law to condemn you for your sin, that died too. A great spiritual change happens as we receive the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't immediately take away our old sinful nature. So we have this battle going on all the time. ...within us, between our new spiritual selves and our old sinful nature. The Bible uses all sorts of images for it, even just in this chapter. It talks about the flesh versus the spirit. It talks about our old self versus our new self. It talks about our inner self versus our outer self. We are at conflict within ourselves. And I want to tell you, that conflict is the experience of every true and sincere believer. So over our breakfast, as we read God's word and we're convicted of things, we say, God, help me today to live for you. And then as we have another coffee at morning tea, we can look back and we have to confess the words and the thoughts and the deeds already, just in two hours that we've already done that day. The greed, the pride, all those things that have already shown themselves. And it would be easy for a non-believer to look at me and say, well, what a hypocrite. And sometimes they'd be right. But it's not as simple as that. See, the Apostle Paul makes a really important point here that helps us distinguish between the sin of a non-believer or the sin of someone who claims to be a Christian but is really just putting on a show... And the sin of someone who is struggling to follow Christ as their Lord and Savior. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, and if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. See, what's the key difference? It's the fact that even as we do it, we don't want to do it. One commentator I read put it like this. He said, even if sinfulness is spread right through me like some horrible cancer in all of my organs, even so, that is what it is. It is a cancer. It's not the real me. It's not the person I have become in Christ Jesus. See, I want to say to you, the fact that you struggle... The fact that you have turned to God for forgiveness and pleaded with him to help you to deal with the sin in your life. The fact that you've taken a stand against your sinfulness. The fact that you hate the fact that you sin. That is the proof that the real you is not your sinful nature, but you are actually a new person in Jesus. The picture he uses here is actually of like a war going on within ourselves. Look with me from verse 21. He says, so I discover this principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is with me. For in my inner self, I joyfully agree with God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. See, That is the Christian life there. We live with this tension at work within us. On the one hand, we are wholeheartedly committed to the law of God and to do God's will but sin still impacts us the Christian life is a fight but it is so different to before we knew Jesus isn't it because then there was no struggle then we were slaves to sin so when will this struggle end I don't know how long you've been a Christian You know, if you're a Christian for 10 more years and you really work hard at it, will the struggle end then? 20 years, maybe? 30 years? John Chapman, who died a couple of years ago, uh, he wrote a book and he said the first 50 years are the hardest. And then he got a bit older and he changed it to the first 60 years are the hardest. What's the answer? Look at verses 24 and 25. He says, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this dying body? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh to the law of sin. See, who's going to rescue us from this tension? Who's going to rescue us from these dying bodies? Who will rescue us from this painful struggle? Jesus will, when he returns. Because then, when he returns, we will be transformed we'll be raised, we'll be given new resurrection bodies and we'll be free from our old selves, free from the flesh, if you like, once and for all. The Bible calls that our glorification. And it's one of the saddest things, I think, that Christians do not look forward to that day more than anything else. See, as Christians, we don't just look back and say, thank you, God, for sending your son all those years ago to die for us and rise again. We look forward we look forward to the day when Christ returns and we will be glorified because only then will we be freed from that tension so that we can live lives of perfect obedience to God. Like last week, I thought I'd put together a little table to try and capture the full picture. So Ross, if you can put up our screen there and it's on your outline as well. And This is trying to capture all of the book of Romans for you. So, well, up to, up to this point anyway. Uh, see, stage one is before we became a Christian. Before we became a Christian, we were slaves to sin. We were under the judgment of God. We are unable to obey God's law or please him. But then when we became a Christian, we were justified. And this is the most important truth. We were declared right with God. We were given eternal life. We were forgiven. We have every, every spiritual blessing in Christ. And that happened the moment you trusted in Jesus. But then now we live the Christian life and the Christian life is a process and what the Bible calls being sanctified. Someone last week wrote me a feedback slip. Uh, they didn't put their name on it. Can I say if you write a feedback slip, put your name on it so I can answer your question. Uh, but they said, why do you use those big words? It's because God's word does. And we've got to learn the big words the Bible uses. So uh, you learn these words. We are sanctified. That means we grow in godliness. We grow in godliness, we, this, we have this struggle for the rest of our lives between the spirit and the flesh but that's not the end of it. The end is the final stage and that's when Jesus returns and that is when we are glorified, when we will be without sin and we will have eternal life with no struggle, we will be renewed in our mind and in our spirit and in our body. I hope you find that table helpful, maybe keep it in your Bible as we keep studying the book of Romans. Uh, So where does that leave us? I've got three brief final conclusions to close and you'll see them printed on the bottom of your outline there. Uh, The first is, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, we live with tension. And that is the main point of tonight. The Christian life is a battle. Don't expect it to be easy. It is a fight. We are not slaves to sin any longer, but we still do sin. That is the reality of the Christian life. We know that we are forgiven, but we keep struggling to do God's will. And I want to say to you, and please listen carefully, you have a problem if there is no struggle, if there is no tension. If you have bought the devil's lie that actually you're pretty good and you're doing God a favor by you going and being a part of his heaven when you die, because you deserve to be there. If you've bought that lie, or if you don't care about the sin in your life, if there is sin in your life that you are just continuing in, and you're like, well, I don't care. Be very, very, very worried, because that says you are still a slave to sin. You are still back at stage one, and you are still standing under the condemnation of God, and you will face his his judgment and death. See, it's a funny truth, the more you mature as a Christian, the, the more we grow in godliness, the more we become aware of how ungodly we are. See, the longer you are a Christian and the more you understand God's Word, you'd think it'd be the opposite, you'd think you'd get it together after a few years and, and it'd all be better now but no, what actually happens is the more godly you become, the more you realise all the other parts of your life that still need to be renovated and the more you realize that even the things you thought you had together in your mind and in your motives they're still tainted by sin see the more mature a Christian is the more they confess their sin to God that's the sign of maturity as a Christian the more we recognize our need for Jesus second point I want to make as Christians we must long for Jesus to return Uh, At our men's night last night, the speaker made the point that sometimes people say Christians are too heavenly minded to be of any earthly use. I've never actually met a Christian for whom that is the case. More often, I meet Christians who are too earthly minded to be of any use at all. See, sometimes you can get so used to the tension and so used to the sin in your life that you think, that's just normal. I want to say long for Christ to return because when Christ returns there will be no more civil war there will be no more tension we will live as God intended us to live with him forever pray for Christ's return but my third and final point is this is not an excuse for giving up you could hear this and just sort of say oh well I can't help it I'm going to keep sinning so I'll just keep sinning that's not what this is saying remember Romans 6 from last week If you missed it, go back and get the podcast. You are not a slave to sin any longer if you know Jesus. You have the Spirit of God. You have been freed. Yes, there is tension. Yes, it is a battle. Yes, we will fail at points. But with the help of the Holy Spirit... And with the help of the other gifts God gives us, our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us and keep us accountable, his word to challenge us and the gift of prayer, with all of that we are able to put off sin in our lives and put on righteousness. We are able to win the fights. We will not reach perfection, not until Christ returns, but we can fight the fight and we have the weapons to do it. And so my word to you tonight is, that is the reality of the Christian life. A battle, a battle against the sin in our life as we seek to put off our old selves and put on the new person that Christ wants us to be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonder of the Gospel. We thank you that we're not saved by what we do because none of us can live up to your standards. Instead, we thank you that we are saved by the death of Jesus that wonderful free gift and simply by trusting in him and in the light of that we pray that we might take sin seriously in our life that we would not tolerate it that we would seek to put it off and put on godliness but at the same time father we thank you for this word of comfort because that tension is so real for all of us we all struggle and fail every day of our lives So we thank you for the comfort to know that it's not just our experience, but the experience of every believer. And so tonight we pray that Jesus might return and put an end to that battle once and for all. And we pray this in his name. Amen.